So about a year ago, I found out that there was such a thing called a quarter life crisis. Now for people my age or over who may not have heard of what it is, basically uh, it's a midlife crisis except it comes to those who are in their mid 20s to late 20s. Now, before you make fun of it, it's really a thing, it really is. And there are actually plenty of 20-somethings in our own church who would say that they've been through something like that or it's something that they're actually maybe currently going through. So how do you know if you're going through a quarter-life crisis? Well, here's what one 25-year-old wrote on his blog. Firstly, you remember being 15 and thinking how at 25 you would have your life together and it would be smashing it. Remembering that now makes you sad. Or how about this one? Social media makes you feel anxious and you can't help but feel freaked out every time an engagement or baby announcement pops up, even though you don't really want to get married or have kids yet. Or this one, listening to Taylor Swift's 22 brings an existential crisis because guess what? You're not 22 anymore and maybe not everything will be all right, Taylor. And this, you're torn between wanting to be a proper grown-up and wanting to be looked after by your parents in a bubble of safety and comfort forever. Well, that's a tough choice, isn't it? But probably most of all, the sign that you might be in a quarter-life crisis is this. You're starting to question what your purpose in life is. Why did you put me on this earth, God? What is the point of my existence? Is that you? Is that you? Whether you're closer to 25 or 45 like me, or any age really, is that you? Now, I'm going to make a really big promise to you right now, especially if you're going through some sort of life crisis, meaning as existence crisis, whether quarter life or midlife or maybe older life crisis. The promise I'm going to make you is this. If you really take on board everything in this chapter that we just read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you will have a life that is meaningful, purposeful, and powerfully resilient against any life crisis. Because you see, in this chapter, God, through the Paul, the writer Paul, is going to give us three things to live by. And if we, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, really lived by them, there is just no way that you would be walking through life wondering what your purpose and your meaning is. Are you ready? Let's pray. And then ask God to help us before we get into it. Father God, we pray that you would be speaking to each one of us now. And whether we've gone through a crisis like this, are going to go through it. Father, help us to be able to see what purpose and plan you have for our lives through this wonderful chapter of 2 Corinthians 5. And help us to live by your spirit in them. In Jesus name. Amen. So what should life look like for those who are followers of Jesus and want to live lives with meaning and purpose? Well, three things. The first one is you've got to firstly walk by faith. All right, that's our first section, verses 1 to 10, walk by faith. Now, the key verse is there in verse 7, isn't it? Verse 7, for we live and literally it's we walk, we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 7. Now, I want you to remember the context of this letter. Paul is writing to a church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. Now, so far in this letter, he's been defending himself against their doubts and their loss of confidence in him and in him as, as a messenger of Jesus. 
Now, at the end of the last chapter we looked at last week, Paul's just spoken about why in spite of all his sufferings and all his weakness and all their doubts, he doesn't lose heart. He doesn't give up. Remember chapter 4, verse 18, the last verse. For we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And that, of course, is exactly the same thing picked up here in chapter 5, right? To fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Well, that's to walk by faith and not by sight. What you can see only with your eyes, what you can judge only by looking around you is not a good indication of what life is all about and what should motivate us in life and what gives life meaning. That's what he's saying. Instead, though, walk by faith. Now, what Paul means by walking by faith and not by sight isn't what many think it means. It doesn't mean that you live by blind faith. Believe in things that can't be verified and proven. As if living by evidence and science is living by sight. So living by faith is the opposite. It's living in the land of make-belief. No, 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 no. Uh, What faith means in the Bible is trusting in promises or realities that are certain and sure, but have not come about yet. You got that? It's actually having good reasons, good evidence to trust in promises or realities that are certain and sure, but still lie in the future somewhere. Uh, Blind faith is going to the pokies and hoping to win the jackpot. The Bible's version of faith is more like waiting for a term deposit to mature and knowing that when it does mature, the bank will not only give you your money back, they will also add interest that you earned. Right? Get the difference, don't you? And here in these first 10 verses, Paul outlines what walking by faith and not by sight means for a follower of Jesus. Now, unfortunately, because of time, we don't have, uh, we we can't look into all of these details, uh, these verses in detail. So I'm just going to point out the guts of it. Walking by faith means living in light of the certain future that waits for every single follower of Jesus. I already said that. So what's that future? Well, the Bible is clear. At the end of everyone's life, there will be a judgment. You see that in verse 10, don't you? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, for followers of Jesus, this judgment will not result in punishment or condemnation. All of our sins have been paid for by Jesus already, And so the bad things we've done will be revealed, but they will not be condemned. But all the good things that Jesus has done in and through us as a fruit of our new life in him, that will also be revealed and they will be rewarded. Okay, there's a lot more on this topic about what Judgment Day might look like for believers, but we'll have to leave that for now. Here's the thing. After this judgment for both believers and unbelievers alike, the Bible says that after judgment day, there will be a new creation. Now, we sometimes call it heaven, but it's actually a bodily existence in a renewed earth. You see, like Jesus, we'll actually get bodies, resurrection bodies, new bodies that are fit for this new home. So bodies that will not get sick and never die. Now, that's what Paul means in these verses by the eternal house in heaven. You read that? Not built by human hands, verse 1. Uh, he also calls it our heavenly dwelling in verse 2. Right, so Paul's using a building image. Our current bodies are like tents. Tents are temporary. Tents are flimsy. Or according to chapter 4 from last week, they're like jars of clay. But in the new creation, you see, we'll have 
new bodies, eternal bodies that are like double brick houses in comparison to tents. Nothing like the flimsy stuff that we've currently got. And Paul is saying, if you knew how awesome and amazing that'd be, you would live your life by faith in these not yet seen realities. See, God has made you a promise. And this promise comes with a guarantee. What's the guarantee? The deposit? Verse 5, it's the Holy Spirit. Right? So this is not yet, but it's certainly going to happen. You don't see it yet, but it is going to happen. So you've got to live by biblical faith. Not blind faith, biblical faith. Right? Walk by faith, not by sight. Long for the promise to come true, the future to happen. You see, all life crises, whether midlife, quarter life, whatever life crises, they come about because there's a mismatch, isn't there, between what you hoped would happen versus what has actually happened. So when it came to the quarter life crisis, I read a meme that puts it like this. I'm turning 25 next week and I'm having a quarter life crisis. I'm officially a real adult. I'm at the age I always thought I'd have everything together in my life. Instead, I've done nothing. Or another meme says this, I always thought I'd have my life together by now, married by 25, a kid or two, being with the perfect woman, but life has other plans. And that's exactly the problem, isn't it? What we pin our hopes on, if it's in this life, if it's pinned on what we see around us, what we see others have around us, what we're told we ought to have by just looking around us, those things will all, without a doubt, without a doubt, they will all disappoint us. Because they are also temporary and so fragile. Because the promise is never as good as the reality. And here's the thing though. Some people have life crises, not because they don't get what they wanted all along, but because they do get what they wanted. You know, the spouse, the kids, the house, the career. But then they get it and they realize, well, it's not quite what I imagined. It didn't and doesn't make me happy. And here's the real tragedy. The real tragedy is that so many followers of Jesus, maybe you, you're pretty much exactly like this. That we live and hope for the same things, we just add church to it. We long for and are disappointed by the same things and we've forgotten that we actually have a much better home and better promises to live and walk by. You know, the youth at our church have been learning a bunch of identity-defining things that the Bible teaches that we should have. The first is that God is my Father. But the second is that heaven is my home. And third is, every day is one day nearer to heaven. It's great, isn't it? And that's exactly what walking by faith should look like. I'm so glad my kids are learning this, the youth are learning this. Heaven, the new creation, that's our true home. Our new creation, resurrection bodies, that's the eternal dwellings that will replace our flimsy tents. That's when we will be properly clothed and not be found naked in verse 3. We should be fixing our eyes on those things. We should be living for those promises, walking by faith in those realities. And we should be longing for it. Longing. In verse 2, it's, it's a groaning now, if you've ever been in a long-distance relationship, you'll know what that feels like. Studies have actually shown that long-distance romances can thrive and grow just as much as face-to-face ones. But you see, however good they are, there's always a deep longing, isn't there? A deep desire to physically 
face to face be with each other again. It's a little bit like the longing followers of Jesus should be feeling. I mean, relationship with God is great, isn't it, as a Christian? After all, His Spirit is in us. He is with us every day, every moment. But yet we are still not there. And we're so limited by our weaknesses, right? By, by our sins, by our distractions and temptations, by the physical limitations of being in a body that gets sick and frail. And so we need to walk by faith and long for heaven. Now, if you do that, guaranteed, you will not be wandering aimlessly in life without purpose, without meaning. Right? That's a promise. That's a guarantee. So that's the first thing. Walk by faith. Well, what's the second? Well, the second is to live a life that's compelled by love. Right? Compelled by love. That's the next paragraph. And the key verses there are in verses 14 and 15. So have a look at them again. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, that word compelled is the idea of having no choice but to do something. Uh, if you've ever been in a, a stuck in a big, thick crowd, and I mean big crowds, like in a concert or the Tokyo subway, if you've ever been there or during peak hour, um, you can't move in the crowd except with the flow of the crowd, right? You have no choice. That's the idea there of compelled. Now, a good illustration of what it's like to live with compulsion is um is Michael Jordan. Now, if you, like me, have been watching The Last Dance on Netflix, you'll know that Jordan was compelled by what, right? What was he compelled by? Every single part of his life, from childhood into his NBA career, to how he treats his teammates, to even his hobbies and what he does in his spare time, he's driven, compelled by what? You know it, don't you, if you watch it? By competition, He's compelled by this overwhelming desire to win, to be the best. It's like he can't help himself, yeah? He has no choice but to be like that. Followers of Jesus were to be compelled like that, but not compelled by what he's compelled by, but, but by a much one, more wonderful and a much more life-affirming reality, compelled by the love of Jesus. Now, for Paul, that compulsion meant in verses 11 to 13 that he did everything he could to share Jesus with others, right? to persuade others, it says in verse 11, so that they'd be ready to face Jesus on judgment day. Now, I'll talk more about that in the next point. But you see verse 13, so great was his compulsion that he was even thought to be, well, a little bit loopy, a little bit crazy, out of his mind, verse 13 says. And if you know anything about Paul's life, that's maybe a fair assessment if you're watching from the outside. He was a radical. He was a real Jesus freak. So why this compulsion? What is it about Jesus and his love that would lead not only Paul, but billions of followers over the last 2,000 years to call Jesus Lord and be willing to follow him even into suffering and some even into death? Well, verse 14 tells us, doesn't it? Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for See, Christ's love and what compels us about his love is seen in one place and one place supremely in the cross where Jesus died. And this passage in the rest of chapter 5 actually spells out why this simple phrase, he died for all, is so important. 
Uh, You see, four things happened when Jesus died. And this passage tells us in chapter 5. So listen up to this. This is important. The four things are number one, exchange. Number two, forgiveness. Number three, reconciliation. Number four, new creation. Now let me go through them. Firstly, exchange. Uh, The last verse of this chapter is actually the most brilliant summary of this idea. Look at verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, when Jesus died, a great exchange happened. And really, this is the heart of the good news of the Bible. Right, so Jesus, he lived a perfect life. He was perfectly righteous. He was always pleasing to God. He never did anything wrong, never sinned. We, well, we've not lived anywhere near a perfect life. All of us has fallen short of God's standards and even our own standards. We've offended God. We've rejected and ignored God. We've hurt others. We've sinned. But when Jesus died, an exchange happened for his people. See, he takes our sin on our behalf and he pays the punishment for them by dying on the cross and experiencing God's just anger that should have been directed at us. Jesus takes it as our substitute. But here's the second and most amazing thing, and some of you may not know this. Jesus not only exchanges our sin by taking in our place, he also gives us his perfection. You see, there's a double exchange. That's what the second half of verse 21 means. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus, you see, we can actually be righteous before God. But you see, it's not a righteousness that we've earned. It's Jesus' righteousness. It's his perfection. It's his sinlessness. But God counts it as ours, clothes it on us like new clothes over us. Because there's been an exchange. Followers of, Jesus, if followers of Jesus, please understand this. When you became a Christian and you put your trust in Jesus, God didn't just cancel your debt and put you back into some sort of neutral position. And now you've got to try harder to maintain that and not mess up. No. God actually sees you as he sees his perfect pleasing, wonderful son, Jesus, and all of Jesus' righteousness and loveliness. If you're a follower of Jesus, you bring a smile to the Father's face because that's what he does. He smiles when he sees Jesus. You are righteous in his eyes and eternally so. That's the first thing that happens by Jesus' death. Exchange. The other three, we can go much quicker. The second is, of course, forgiveness. And this one follows naturally. If our sin has been already paid for on the cross by Jesus, then of course we can be forgiven, yeah? Verse 19, God doesn't count people's sins against them. The slate is clean, the debt is wiped. Third result of Jesus' death, reconciliation. Now, to be reconciled is to have a broken relationship mended and restored. Now, you see it there in verse 18. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Now that sin has been dealt with through Jesus' death and God's people are righteous in his sight, we are now back in relationship with the God who created us for that purpose from the very beginning. We're back in relationship with him. Then finally, fourthly, new creation. Now technically, this is a result of Jesus' resurrection, but... You know, death and resurrection belong together anyhow for Jesus. Verse 17, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. 
Yeah, see, those who trust in Jesus and follow Jesus are born again since John chapter 3. You get a new life the moment you become a Christian and it actually lasts into all eternity. The new creation has already begun invisibly. But when Jesus returns and the rest of the visible creation, it'll catch up, right? When he recreates heaven and earth, the new creation work inside, in a sense, will overflow and everything outside will be made new by God. All right, that's it. That simple phrase, Christ died for us, means all those four things just in 2 Corinthians 5, which is why this is such a great chapter. Now, coming back to what should motivate us, right? What should compel us? Remember, that's the point of this section. Christ died for us because why? Because he loves us. Because he loves you. See, Jesus didn't have to do any of this. God had every reason to leave us as we are, leave the world as it is, or actually, he had every reason to damn us all to hell. But instead, what does God do? He became a man. He lived that perfect life. He died a horrible death. He went to hell instead of us. He exchanged himself for us. He rose again so that we can have all of this forgiveness and reconciliation and new creation. And why did he do it all? Because of love. You may know these passages, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You see, if we have any sense of what Jesus did for us out of his love, we could live for and be compelled by nothing else, could we? To have been loved like that. Because then we would understand verses 14 and 15. Let's look again at those key verses. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. And notice this, and therefore all died. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Right? You see, there is a conviction that goes along with the compulsion. What's the conviction? If Jesus loved me and died for me, then my life is no longer mine. My old life of sin and rebellion, well, well, I died. That died with Jesus on the cross when he exchanged himself for me. So my life is no longer mine to live for me. No, instead, compelled by love, I want to now live for him who died for me and was raised again. The pioneer missionary James Hudson Taylor was compelled by love when he left for China in the 19th century in order to share Jesus with the Chinese. Back in those days, missionaries like him, they went with all their belongings and put it in a coffin on a ship because they were not expected to come back. This is what Hudson Taylor wrote in his journal. He wrote this. I love these words. If I had a thousand pounds of money, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives... China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious savior? See, he was compelled by love, wasn't he? Now, compelled by the same love of Jesus, thousands actually followed Hudson Taylor into China, even in his lifetime, and gave their lives for China, for Jesus. And hundreds of them literally gave their lives murdered on the mission field 
uh, at the turn of the 20th century at the Boxer Rebellion, if you know some of Chinese history. And yet, like every person compelled by Jesus, they all lived meaningful and purposeful and powerful lives. Lives that counted, lives that burnt briefly, but brightly and into eternity. Don't you want that? You see, if you live compelled by love, then you will live every moment for Jesus. You will count your life not as your own anymore. And by the way, you don't have to give your life up to be a missionary or a pastor to live like this. No, no, no. You live it out every time you decide to serve someone else and put their needs above, their, above your own. You live it out every time you say no to sin and instead say yes to obeying God. You live it out when you make little and big life decisions that put Jesus right at the center of your life rather than try and fit him around the edges of your life. So you got that? Walk by faith, be compelled by love, and finally, you want to live a purposeful and meaningful life? Number three, represent Jesus. The last paragraph, 16 to 21. Now, we've already dipped into this final paragraph quite a lot to talk about what Jesus died for us means, but the main idea of this final paragraph is actually this. It's in verse 20. The, the, the main thrust of this paragraph is verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, you know what an ambassador is, right? Ambassador is someone who represents and speaks on behalf of someone else. And usually that someone is someone with authority or someone important. Now, one of the new jobs that have now come about since social media is that of a brand ambassador. You heard of that? Brand ambassador, right? Any person with a big social media presence can be picked up by a corporation and offered to be a brand ambassador. And you can get pretty paid pretty well for this kind of thing. Now, as awesome as that might sound to you, right, especially if you're a younger generation, oh, it's like, that's the dream job. Uh, representing a brand as an ambassador is not the same and it's nowhere near greater honor as being a real ambassador. An ambassador that represents your country, your nation. You see, if you messed up as a brand ambassador, what happens? Like say you are a brand ambassador of Nike, but you're caught on Instagram wearing Reeboks. Well, if you get caught and you mess up, you'd get fired, right? You've got to find a new source of income, but that's about it. But what happens if you mess up and you're an actual ambassador? You know, the ambassador of a country or in the ancient world, ambassador of a kingdom representing a king. And I'll tell you what happens if you mess up there. If you mess up and represent wrongly or relay the wrong information, your countries might actually go to war. People, including you, might actually die. Yeah, it's a much greater honor and much weightier responsibility. Now, Paul is saying that he and those who preach Jesus like him are ambassadors of much more than a brand, right? We're ambassadors of the King of Kings, Jesus. You see, Jesus has a message, and it's a message we've already looked at in the last point. By his death, Jesus has reconciled the world, and so his message to the world is this, be reconciled to God. Accept my offer to be forgiven, to be saved, to be reconciled and do it before it's too late. By the way, if you're here, you're watching this and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then this message of be reconciled to God is first and foremost a message. Well, it's for you, isn't it? It's for you. You have a chance to be reconciled to your creator who loves you and sent his son to die for you. Today is the day you can take up that offer. 
please don't wait. Um, connect with us through this link below and let us know that you want to do this and we will get help to you as soon as we can. And so for Paul and for those who are compelled by Christ's love, there is a tremendous privilege, tremendous responsibility, isn't there, as an ambassador to take this message from our King to a world that needs to hear it before it's too late. Because you'll note the kind of words Paul's used, Paul used for his job as an ambassador, don't you? In verse 11, he says, we try to persuade others. In verse 20, we implore you. Right? There's an urgency. There's a passion that must accompany it because this is a life or death offer. If you want to live a life with purpose and meaning, then take seriously the call to represent Jesus and represent Him well by bringing this offer to the world around you. Now, you already heard about our announcement about uh, over June and July, we've got these uh, three now what conversations online about life after COVID. Well, why not invite someone who isn't a follower of Jesus to come along with you? It'll be good for you, but it'll be especially good for them because they'll hear the gospel They'll be invited to come and find out more. All the hard work will actually be done for you. All you've got to do is invite them. Will you do that? Before I finish, there's one detail we need to note, and that is the call to be reconciled to God isn't just to non-believers, non-Christians. Did you notice that Paul is calling on his audience, his readers, the Corinthians, to be reconciled to God? Now, the Corinthians aren't outsiders. They're insiders. They're already Christians. Now, I take it that what Paul means isn't that they've somehow become God's enemies again and need to be reconciled all over again, as in forgiven and saved all over again. Now, that's, not, that's already happened. That's not what he means. But it seems that Paul is saying that there are times in our Christian lives and choices that we make that might put distance or might put strain in our walk with God, in our relationship with Him. It could be deliberate sin or backsliding or walking away from God. It could just be neglect and forgetfulness. And in those cases, like it was for the Corinthians, God is urging and imploring us to, what? Be reconciled to Him. To come back to Him. And today I want to ask, is that you? Is that you today? Have you heard somewhere in this passage a personal word from God just for you? And you know it because he's stirring in your heart. You feel uncomfortable. Maybe it's your quarter-life crisis or your midlife crisis that actually exposed that as a Christian, you've lost sight of what you should really be living for. See, maybe rather than walking by faith and living for eternity, you've become so caught up in the worldly, in the temporary. And rather being compelled by Jesus' love to live for him, you've gone back to living for yourself, basically. And his love no longer even moves you. And rather than representing Jesus well as his ambassador, you've become, the kind of, you've become the kind of Christian that the world looks at and doesn't really know the difference, except that you might go to church. Is that you? Because if it is, and God is speaking to you, he is saying to you, isn't he? Be reconciled to me. So today, Christian, confess it. Today, repent of it. Come back to him so that you can live the kind of meaningful and purposeful and powerful life that you were created to live. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would be convicting hearts right now, whether they are people who need to be reconciled to you for the first time, or those among us who may have lost sight of that and need to be reconciled to you again by fixing our eyes on what is important, walking by faith, being compelled by love, and representing you well. Please 
change us we pray in jesus name amen now if you have time for a discussion question amongst your groups have a think of this one and i'll show it on the screen maybe just choose one of the three points from today one of the three points all right walk by faith compelled by love represent jesus and share about what applying that one point for you might look like in the coming week okay great thanks for joining us today and we'll see you again next week